Okay, you didn't hear my first good morning, apparently, so good morning. Je Jeff heard me, yeah. Um, always really <laughs> the most excited of everyone. Um, I'm really excited for a passage today. Uh, this is, uh, we've been going through parables, and parables are what? Does anyone remember my definition? I'm going to say it every single week until we get kind of a, it's kind of a complicated definition. A parable is... Die die? No, it's too hard. It's too. This is a. This is a. You oh you missed last week. So but you were here for the two previous weeks where we talked about. So okay. So you remember it from that. Um, a parable is a word picture or a story that communicates a spiritual truth that has a force on the audience. Okay. So it's basically a story Jesus tells people that means something that communicates something about spiritual truth. Uh, that has some kind of force on the audience, okay? And so we've talked through a, a number of parables. Raise your hand if you remember one of the parables that we talked about. And just say it aloud. Okay, you don't have to raise your hand. Just say it aloud. Wheat, wheat in the weeds, yeah. What else? The seed, yeah. What else? Wheat in the weeds, the soil, and then what else did we talk about? Anyway, this week we're going to be talking about two more parables. Last time we talked about uh, the mustard seed and the leaven. You guys remember that one? Uh, where each one of these parables is communi communicating something uh, that is, in a sense, that uh, forces us to reconsider how we view the kingdom of God. Uh, so one, there's a major contrast that Jesus is drawing by telling each one of these parables between the earthly kingdoms and the way the kingdom of God operates, the kingdom of heaven. And so when you look at, when you look at the parable of the uh, mustard seed and the leaven, Jesus was communicating something where the kingdom of heaven begins very, very small. And yet it has this incredible potential to grow. And over time, gradually but unstoppably, it becomes this incredibly large thing. And so what's really interesting about that parable is uh, this is not typically the way we think of what's powerful, okay? If you were to talk about the most powerful country in the world, the most powerful nation in the world, whatever it might be, uh, you typically think of power and kingdoms in terms of how much force a kingdom or nation can exert on other nations around it. Uh, the, the kingdom that's most powerful, the government that's most powerful, has the most control over its subjects and is able to force them and compel them to do whatever they want, right? And so um, there's been, you know, like there have been a lot of examples of this where if you've been following the war in Ukraine, uh, recently there's been a lot of kind of, I, I mean, again, like, I don't know news sources. I'm not always sure like what's going on. But recently, it seems like there have been Russian uh, men who don't want to be conscripted, and so they've been fleeing the country. And so the, uh, Russia is a picture of force and a kingdom of the world, and you could say every earthly kingdom, to some degree, practices this type of power, where you compel people to do something, you create pressure or negative incentives, or you, you, you can say, like, you give the stick and the... You, oh, thank you. You give them the stick and you give them the carrot. 
this is how the kingdom of the world works. Uh, and even in, you know, like even in America, if you think about the way the democratic system works, we've all signed a social contract that allows us to avoid violence when legislature is passed, right? Where whenever someone on one side passes some legislature, everyone on the other side is like, oh my gosh, I can't believe they would pass that law. This is so terrible. But then they're like, okay, but we agreed that this is the way the system works. And so, I mean, hopefully this continues. We will not resort to violence to compel those people to, um, you know, agree with what we want. And then the other side passes a different law and everyone's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe, you know, like, but we agreed to the social contract, right? And so what's interesting is still in the system, one side is exerting power and compelling the other side to, um, what do you call it, uh, adhere to the laws or whatever is going on. This week, we're going to look at two more very brief parables. And I think, uh, I think these parables say something really cool about the way the kingdom of God works. Um, I think these parables actually confront many of our assumptions about the way Christianity works, the way God works. And this, these parables also intersect with our experiences of what church is like. So if, if you don't have a lot of experience with church, that's actually probably a good thing um, in some degree, in some senses, because you're kind of like a blank slate and maybe you don't have a lot of baggage when it comes to Christianity. You know, you probably have baggage from like, oh, what is me, like, you know, what you read on the internet or like different things like that. Um, but for some of us, if you go to like a Christian school, you know, like I went to a Catholic school in high school, um, if you attend church, but you don't really understand much about who God is, your parents make you go, uh, or even if, uh, when I went to school in the South, I, I went to school in Memphis College, and in different areas of the country, Christianity, whoa, changing the, whoa, is my voice deeper now? Okay. <laughs> um, in different areas of the country, there are cultural Christians who conform to Christian values or whatever it might be, um, but again, it's simply, out of, uh, it's simply out of adhering to what everyone else is doing, and so they don't really understand it. And so this gives people an impression of what Christianity is like. Um, but these parables say something very different. Okay? These, these parables say something about uh, the way God operates, the way his kingdom operates, and this has a lot of impact on our personal relationship with God. It has a lot of impact on how we motivate other people within the church, how we see our role in influencing other people. So this is from Matthew chapter 13, uh, verses 44 through 46, two really brief short parables, but I think they have a lot of impact. Uh, so if you have a Bible, can you go ahead and open it up and read with me? Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Let me read that one more time. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. 
this is God's word. Let's pray. Uh, dear Lord, I pray, Father, by your power and your spirit, you would reveal uh, your beauty and worth uh, to us as we hear from you. Uh, I pray, Lord, that you would show us how wonderful your gospel is, um, the treasure that many of us have found, um, and how beautiful and good it is uh, to be your children. Um, so I pray, Lord, that as we reflect and remember your goodness, it would be strengthening us and encouraging us. Your word would be equipping us uh, to be your witnesses in the world. We love you so much and pray that this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so there are two pictures here, two parables uh, that are used to make this a similar point, right? Let me tell you the two stories. In the first story, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. So now, a little bit of background information. Um, during this time, during this time, people did not have safety deposit boxes. They didn't have banks. And so as a result, when, uh, like, imagine, so this was, Jesus was addressing people who lived in, like, Palestine, you know, like the Near East. And during this time, uh, this was a war-ravaged country. There was Roman occupation. There was all kinds of different, um, you know, invading armies. And there was, like, bandits and all different kinds of things. And so you, you kind of come across this conundrum, right? Where if you have something valuable in your house, uh, how are you going to protect it? How are you going to keep someone from going into your house, killing you, and taking your stuff? And so this would have actually been a very common practice where they would have buried their valuable possessions uh, in their field, right? It's really, really interesting because we don't typically do this. But I guess this is like, okay, um, <laughs> so I had a pastor friend, friend growing up. Um, I'm not going to tell you who it is, but I remember I had a pastor friend who would do something very similar to this. Um, what he would do is he saved a lot of cash and he would put like large denomination bills in all of his Bible commentaries. And so when I would go to his house, I, I, I knew this, I could like go to different Bible com commentaries and like flip through the pages and I would find like $200, like a 200, two, 200, two $100 bills. And what, what, like what's, what's his reasoning behind that? If a robber breaks into our house, what is the last place that robber would go? <laughs> the last place the robber would go is to his library of Bible commentaries, unless that robber is named Daniel Gillum, in which case that's the first place I would go. Um, even if I didn't know he hid money there, I would probably steal his Bible commentaries because I find those to be precious. But I'm, I'm like an, I'm an odd bird. I'm not like very common. Uh, what's the reasoning behind that? You take your valuable possessions and you hide it somewhere where other people can't find it. And so in the same way, you can just imagine there was someone who lived um, in this you know, house and they had a field. And there, uh, you know, there, was, there was a message that went throughout the nation where an army was invading. And so what they did is they took their valuables, they took their treasure and buried it in the ground. Uh, and then they left the country. They, they, they had to flee because their country was going to become occupied, war-torn, and they wanted to save their family and run away. But then something happened, and they passed away when they were in this other country. They died. And so no one ever returned to that field, and there was just a treasure buried there. There's a treasure buried there. So one day, there was a man who was digging in the field. Perhaps he was 
sowing some seed or doing something, digging, like uh, furrowing or what do you call it, like the in the ground to plant seeds or grow something or do some kind of project. And, you know, you can just kind of imagine he's like digging, 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 and then boop, his shovel hits something hard, right? And I love this because when I was a kid, I, would, I always wanted to be a pirate or I wanted to be like an archaeologist, like an Indiana Jones or whatever it might be. So this is like really romantic to me. It's, it's so cool. Uh, did, has anyone ever done the thing where you get like a metal detector and go to a beach and like, I don't know. Anyway, this is kind of like that, right? He's not intending to find anything. He's just doing something. And then he comes across this treasure. And you can, I could just like imagine it, you know, like he opens up the chest. I don't know what, what how they kept treasure back then. Maybe just in the ground. He opens up the chest because I'm imagining it's like a pirate treasure. And it's incredible. Like, you know, diamonds, jewels, like it's, it's worth so much money. And so what does he do? He's a smart guy. So he doesn't go to the person. This is not his field, right? He doesn't go to the person who owns the field and is like, Oh my gosh, you won't imagine what I found. I found this amazing treasure. Now, can I buy the tre- can I buy the field from you? No, that would be dumb because then the person would be like, no, it's my, it's my treasure. Um, and so what he did instead was he didn't tell the guy. And then he said, I'll sell everything that I have to buy this treasure. And then he bought the treasure. And it says, in his joy, he went and sold everything to buy the treasure. And so, again, this is a parable. So Jesus is not saying you should engage in unsavory or dishonest business practices. That's not the point. The point is the feeling of coming across something that's incredibly valuable and being so excited about giving up everything to acquire that thing. Okay? Uh, the, let's look, we'll just keep going. Let's look at the next picture. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. So now what do these two things have in common? In, in both of them, there is some kind of object that has incredible value. In both stories, someone sells everything that they have to acquire that object. What's different about these stories? In the first one, the person just comes across it. Um, it's almost like random. It's just like he's digging in the ground and then boop, he finds it. In the second one, this person's job is to find valuable pearls. They're a pearl merchant. And so they have a very discerning eye and everything that they do in their life is all about finding the most valuable thing. And so there's a, there's a bit of a contrast. When they come across this pearl, they say to themselves, this pearl is the most beautiful, precious thing I've ever seen in my life, and it's on sale. This is such a great deal. However, in order for me to get this pearl, it's gonna cost me everything. I have to liquidate my entire inventory. I have to sell my you know, Pokemon cards, whatever it might be. I have to sell everything. All my hobbies, all my, like I have to empty my bank account, everything. I have to sell everything to get this one pearl. And so you kind of see the pattern that's going on in this parable. This is a very strange picture because what Jesus is saying is when you think about kingdoms of the world, uh, this is basically saying, what is the emotional tone of being a Christian? What is it like to find the kingdom of heaven? It's like coming across the best deal you've ever experienced, um, but it costs everything. This thing you come across is so incredibly valuable that you're willing, and not only willing, it says in his joy, 
he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. And so this is like coming across treasure. The kingdom of heaven is like coming across treasure. Now, this has a lot of implications for how we understand our relationship with God. Uh, there, are, there are a number of them. Uh, number one, uh, this, there is a contrast being drawn between the motivation that other kingdoms place on their subjects and the motivation that comes from the kingdom of heaven. Do you, can you kind of understand what the, the difference is in the motivations? Um, when, if, you've, uh, <laughs> if you've been in a church for any period of time, uh, there is an uncomfortable tendency for people to want to motivate other people to do stuff to help the church, right? Um, and again, I'm a pastor, so I probably do this. I probably exerted pressure on people. Uh, but w- what's interesting is in kingdoms of the world, you draft people to go into the army. If there's something that you want them to do, you exert force and power on them, right? Like, like what we said before, you draft them, you compel them. Uh, in a church like ours, typically there's some kind of like, you know, peer pressure or like, like passive aggressive shaming, guilt tripping, whatever it might be, where it's like, oh, look at this person over here. They're so great. You know, they help out with the chairs, but you, Joshua, you don't. (laughs) And I didn't say anything. I mean, like, I wasn't like, Joshua, you should help out with the chairs. I just pointed to this other person, Daniel Dye, who is so exemplary and so amazing. And, you know, maybe you should be a little more like Daniel Dye, Joshua, right? So like, um, and so, like, this, this happens all the time where it's like, as a parent, you want your kid to do something and you say, oh, look at that other kid. You know, they go to church every week or like whatever it might be. Um, what is going on there? What is the motivation behind someone, mo- like, behind someone getting someone to do something they want? Um, you're kind of manipulating. It's an external force that's acting on someone else. But here, there's a very different motivation where the motivation for finding the kingdom of, the motivation that comes out of finding the kingdom of heaven is internal where no one is acting on you no one is forcing you to do any, anything uh, so if you look at the cost of the kingdom of heaven and this is a really this is a really interesting point that leads to this tension um, Jesus asks his disciples to give up everything and follow him you know all throughout the scripture he says if anyone would come after me let him deny himself carry his cross daily, and come follow me. Jesus is making a claim on your whole life. And this is really this is really crazy. And this is where you get into interesting kind of dynamics within churches, where in churches, we want people to be disciples of Jesus. Like, I would like you to be a, be a disciple of Jesus. But what's the motivation behind doing that? Um, there have been, you know, a lot of there have been a lot of articles in churches about leaders who have been domineering when it comes to uh, exerting pressure on the people in their church. Uh, and, you know, like there is one that came out not too long ago about like a church planning network that we've interacted with to some degree. And what this group would do is they would say, this is what it looks like to be a whole life disciple of Jesus. And if you don't do that, we are going to publicly shame you we're going to call you out. We're going to like exert this type of type of pressure on people. Um, they're getting one thing right: to really follow Jesus and understand what that means means giving up everything. However, the motivation and emotional tenor behind 
creating that type of manipulative or like passive aggressive environment is absolutely not in line with what Jesus says about the kingdom of heaven. What he says about the kingdom of heaven is when you truly understand who Jesus is, who the king of the kingdom is, you want to, you like in your joy, you go and sell everything and follow him. Uh, this has a lot of implications for us. So number one, uh, this actually has really impacted this, these parables are probably my dad's, one of the most impactful parables for my dad. Um, so my dad is like a like pastor, teacher, all this stuff. And he always says, my dad hates authority. <laughs> my dad has a problem with authority. He doesn't like other people telling him what to do. And he also doesn't like when he tells people to do stuff. Um, and so this parable has had a huge impact on him because he thinks so much of church is about like forcing and pushing and domineering people to get stuff done. Um, but what he says is the most important thing when it comes to uh, sharing the good news of Jesus is you want to show them the treasure. You want to show them the treasure. What does that mean? Rather than saying, rather than saying I'm going to force you to come with me to this restaurant, you know, I'm, I'm going to like, I'm going to kidnap you and throw you in my van and drive you to this restaurant and go, no, I could do that, but it's ridiculous, right? What instead should I do? I should give them a taste of the restaurant. I should bring them like this food. It's like, oh, it's so good. You want to try some? And then they have it. And then all of a sudden they're like, wow, I love this restaurant. This restaurant is awesome. It's worth it. I want to go there too. And so my dad always says, show them the treasure rather than exerting force from the outside and trying to influence and control them to do something. Simply tell them how good the treasure is to you. And so this is what it means to be to evangelize. To, to share the good news with people, uh, you do not have the responsibility of creating the outcome you want. A lot of Christians think you have to force them to believe something. And you're a bad Christian if you can't like cajole them or persuade them into being a Christian. But that's actually not the way the kingdom operates. That would be like us drafting people into the kingdom of heaven where it's that would be like the crusades or that would be like many examples of christians in the past who have used violence or force to convert people but what is god saying here god's saying what i want is people who find the kingdom of heaven and are joyful they're so excited now it does mean selling everything right because both passages talk about giving up everything but what is the emotional tenor of these people's lives? Is the person who sells everything to buy the treasure in the field, like, okay, so he's liquidating his first edition Charizard or whatever is like, he, he's, he's liquidating his Pokemon cards or like he's selling his precious stuff. He has to sell his motorcycle or whatever. I don't know. What do you guys like? What's the cool stuff you like? Sells his house, whatever it might be. He's not thinking to himself, oh man, I have to like give the, my $5 to this person. He's thinking, yes, I get to sell everything because this is such a great deal, right? This is so worth it to me. The value of the treasure far surpasses the value of anything that I have. Anything I have, right? It far surpasses the value. And so I think there, there are a couple, of, I, I mean, I, I totally like, lost my train of thought. The, the, there are a couple of implications this has. Um, if you are in the youth group or if you're kind of investigating the claims of Christianity, I want you to know um, you don't have to think, like when people pressure you to do stuff, 
Um, I would say, please, like, you don't have to, like, do it. So I would say, okay, if you're a kid and your parents tell you to go to church, like, you should obey your parents, right? You should go to church. But you don't have to pretend that God is good and you love God and is so valuable if you don't feel that way about God. You really don't. You really don't. Because God doesn't even want people who are Christians who are constantly, like, gritting their teeth and exerting their willpower, and it's like, oh, this is such a pain. Oh my gosh, I hate being a Christian, but I have to. That's not it. <laughs> That's not it. And so even when you're evangelizing to people, if you're constantly motivating people by fear, where you're like, oh, really bad stuff's going to happen to you if you don't be a Christian. I mean, to some degree, I would say that's true. I mean, I would say that's true. But that's not the reason why someone should become a Christian. That's not the reason. That's not how God works. When Jesus was on the earth and he went around teaching, he actually did not compel people to follow him. In fact, many times it almost seems like he was trying to dissuade them from following him. You guys know that? There is a rich young man, and he, he basically, this guy was like, how do, I, how do I get into the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, you know, go and sell everything you have and come follow me. Actually, Jesus says he looked at him and he loved him and then told him to give up everything and come follow Jesus. And then the rich young man didn't. Um, and then Jesus, and then he left away and he was, or the, the man left and he was sad. So Jesus actually is saying, you have to give up everything to follow me. And the man was saying he had many treasures. He had many possessions. And when he made the cost benefit analysis, right, he was like, is my treasure more valuable to me than eternal life and following Jesus. What was his calculation? His treasure, his earthly treasure was more important to him. And so what my dad is saying is, again, like this is where, this is your attitude towards church changes dramatically. Um, if you're like a youth kid and you're in youth group, what I think should happen in youth group is I think youth counselors should show you how good God is to them and why they, why they treasure Jesus Christ. What also can happen is you guys should be able to ask questions about who God is because you're like, okay, if I'm going to follow God, if I'm going to give him everything, why would I do that? I have to know what God is like. I have to meet him and experience him and, know, and come to understand better and better his character, whether he's trustworthy, whether he loves me, all of these different things. And so... Rather than being a pressure-packed, outcome-oriented environment where you're like, I need this many kids to convert every single year, it should be an, an environment where you can have the freedom uh, where people are not pressuring you. They're inviting you. Like, I want to invite you to become a Christian right now because I think it's great, but I'm not going to force you to because I can't. <laughs> Even if I was to force you to conform to external behaviors, that doesn't mean that you would sell everything out of joy. That's a huge difference. You have to, for yourself, see the value of the kingdom of heaven. You have to see the treasure, and then everything else in the, in the Christian life makes sense. Do you, know, like, do you know where I get this in the, in the passage? Can you imagine what it would be like to know this guy who finds the treasure in the field? He starts to do something really weird. Like, imagine you were his wife. Like, this would be, like, really funny. Imagine he's married, and uh, he says, I, I say to my wife, Ashley, Ashley, we're going to sell our house. We're going to liquidate all our stocks. We're just going to, like, 
give all of our cash. We're getting rid of everything to buy this thing, right? To buy like a painting or whatever it is. I don't know. Um, what would she think? She'd be like, no, Daniel, you're crazy. Why? Because she doesn't know the value of the thing that I'm trying to get, right? So if I was buying like a real Rembrandt painting for if to sell our house, to, to liquidate everything, give up all our cash, would it be worth it for that painting? If I, if I could do that for all the money we had, I would do that in a heartbeat because it's worth hundreds or thousands of times more than everything we have, right? Being a Christian is so weird from the outside. It really is. When, if, you're, if you don't understand the treasure of Jesus Christ, when Christians do stuff, it, it seems very strange, you know? Like there are Christians who are like, you know, I'm not going to become a software, I'm, I'm going to quit my software engineering job and go into ministry because I feel like God has called me to this. Um, or my favorite example of this is my, um, my spiritual hero, whatever it might be. Um, his name is D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. So he was in the, and I tell the story all the time, but whatever, you deal with it. Um, this, this guy was like, um, he was like Dr. House. Uh, he, was, he was a medical like prodigy, basically, where when he was uh, in his early 20s, he worked with Lord Horder, who was the royal physician. So this was when, this was in the early 1900s. And so this guy was on this like shooting star path. He was in all of the right social circles. He was extremely good at medicine. He, he won awards for the type of work he was doing and the research he was doing. Um, and then all of a sudden, he felt a call from God. He felt, he understood the gospel. He saw the beauty of the gospel and the salvation of Jesus Christ. And he left his, his medical career to become a minister in like a, like in a place that was kind of like low economic status. So he left London where everything was happening and he left to be an evangelist and a pastor in like a nowhere land, right? And there, the, he was a big enough deal that newspapers were talking about this. Like, like big newspapers in London were like, why is D. Martin Lloyd-Jones leaving his medical practice? Like, it doesn't make any sense. Why would he leave medicine? And you know what they asked him? They're like, like, I can't believe you're giving up so much to become a pastor. Like, why would you do that? And do you know what he said to them? He, he said to them, I'm not giving up anything. For me, the worth of God, following God's calling far outweighs the value of the status, the money, the acclaim that comes from being a doctor. And he said, I would far rather minister to people's eternal souls than to heal potentially their physical bodies because one of them has an eternal impact. The other one, they will eventually die no matter how amazing I am at medicine. But in the other one, I can save their eternal souls. And so D. Martin Lee Jones is like a hero to me, but the way he went about it, when he was giving up everything, what did it feel like to him? Was he like, like dragging his feet and he was like, oh man, I can't believe I have to give up everything. No, he was like, I would do this in a heartbeat. I would do this a million times because that's how good the treasure is. That's how good God is. Uh, another example of someone who gave up everything. So this is what it means. To receive the kingdom of heaven means you don't hold on to anything and you're willing to give it all for the sake of knowing Jesus and being part of his kingdom. 
Uh, and this means a lot of different things. There are a lot of implications for this. There are a lot of passages uh, throughout scripture where it talks about this. Uh, there's one where there's a really interesting passage in Mark chapter 10. In Mark chapter 10, where... Oh, I'm reading Mark chapter 9. Okay, where the, this is in Mark chapter 10, verses 29 and 30, where the disciples leave everything to follow Jesus. So, like, they leave their families, they leave, leave their fishing practices, they leave whatever it might be. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and land with persecution and in the age to come eternal life. What is he saying here? The disciples are like, what do we get? What do we get out of leaving everything to follow you? And Jesus says, you will receive a hundredfold. Your investment will 100 times. Okay. Do you know how crazy that is? Do you know how crazy that is? If you had a thousand dollars and you like invested it and your, your return was a thousand percent. What would that, that's crazy, right? When, like, when does that ever happen? A hundred times. Uh, in this, it, to, leave any, uh, to leave all of these things for the gospel, you will receive a hundredfold now and in the future. What does this look like? Um, there is a man named Nabil Qureshi who passed away not too long ago. So he grew up in a, a Muslim family they were very devout Muslims. And again, it's kind of weird I'm using all these examples. Uh, he also was practicing medicine. Uh, and he was, he, was grad, he was in med school when he encountered his friend David, who basically started to share with him about Jesus. And they engaged in lots of long philosophical and theological conversations about whether Christianity was true, whether it made sense, uh, whether like how Islam and Christianity are related to each other. And so over time, Nabil Qureshi actually converted and encountered God. He had, God had sent him dreams. There was a lot of weird stuff that happened. But in the end, Nabil Qureshi was basically like, I believe the Bible is the word of God. I believe Jesus died for my sins. Um, but there's a huge problem. Uh, his family was still, was still Muslim, and they were extremely devout. And so there is this, there is this turning point where he had to choose between uh, getting baptized and telling his parents or not telling them. Or, and like, ba so basically, uh, he had to choose between potentially being disowned or about keeping his faith hidden or about rejecting Jesus because of the cost, the cost to his family unity would be too great. Um, and so what happened was he actually finished medical school and then he started to tell his parents, it was like a triple whammy. He said, number one, I'm going to leave medicine and go into ministry. Number two, I'm going to marry a white woman, and they didn't want that either. And then number three, uh, so gonna go into medicine, uh, leave medicine, become a Christian, and marry a Western woman. And so this actually was really, really hard for the mom and dad, because they felt like he was just being like resentful. They, they felt like he was being spiteful. They're like, you're doing this to hurt us. His dad was like, okay, marry the white woman. That's fine. Become a Christian. Okay, sure. But why would you leave medicine? It doesn't make any sense to me. 
And Nabil Qureshi basically had to decide. And, and what he decided was, Jesus says in this passage that some of us might have to leave father and mother. And the cost is great. But he also knew it is worth it to follow Jesus. And Jesus was so precious to him that he was willing to give up. It, this, it's not like he wanted to have this rift in his relationship. But he had to follow Jesus and he knew that it cost everything. And so he left um, Islam, became a Christian, joined ministry. Uh, his parents didn't attend his wedding, which is really sad. Um, but then over the course of five years, eventually they came around and they, they accepted his new religion, their faith, his faith, um, and there was like reconciliation within the family. So that was really cool. Um, and then eventually, I mean, he actually passed away not too long ago of, of cancer when he was really, really young, um, which is really sad. But he says at the end of his uh, memoir, his biography, um, all suffering is worth it to follow Jesus. He is that amazing. All suffering, and he's thinking about the pain he went through. He said his first year as a Christian was unbearably difficult. I can't imagine what it would be like to be that, uh, like to have my relationship with my parents that damaged. Um, they're not talking to me. They're, they don't want to meet my wife. That, that must be so difficult. And he said, my first year as a Christian was one of the most difficult years of my life. But then he can look back and say, it was all worth it to follow Jesus. And so it's not that, it's not that Christians love giving up everything. It's that they know Jesus is worth so much more than, than they could ever imagine. And so there is, and okay, so what does this mean for us? Uh, if you are begrudging about the way you're serving in church or, you know, you have to show up on Sunday, the things you have to sacrifice for Jesus, all I would say is remember the value of what he's given you. Remember, think about it. Think about the value of the thing that you have, the kingdom of heaven, your salvation, eternal life, a relationship with God, the Holy Spirit, every spiritual blessing. And Ephesians says, you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Do you realize what that means? For me, the Holy Spirit is my comforter. The, the Holy Spirit pours out love in my heart. My life with God is so good and precious. The people that I've met over the course of being a Christian, um, my, my life has absolutely been transformed because I, I, I talk about this a lot. Um, I would be, I'm introverted and I would never know the number of amazing people that I have come to know um, if I wasn't a Christian. I just wouldn't have. I would have played a lot of video games and stayed in my room and, and I would have been depressed a lot. I'm not saying anything is wrong with any of those things. But what I'm saying is, like, I never could have imagined how good it was to leave everything to follow God. And again, I'm not saying that I've, like, I'm really, I'm perfect or anything. But all I'm saying is, at every moment in my life, the moments where I've decided to give something up for God, um, God has been faithful to give something amazing back. Okay, and when I say that, I'm not saying like, oh, give God $5 and he's going to give you $100. I'm not saying that. I'm saying it's worth it. I'm saying it's worth it to give up everything if it means knowing Jesus and having a relationship with him. But again, you don't have to take my word for it. This is where I'm not trying to say you should become a Christian. I'm saying you should investigate 
and try to figure out whether Jesus is actually that amazing for yourself. And what this means is you ask people. So for those of you who would say, I'm already a Christian, but I'm kind of begrudging. I'm like, church is boring or whatever. I'm having a tough time. I'm so tired all the time from whatever it might be. Remember the treasure you have. If you're looking at Christianity, here's what I have you do. Um, I would have you go to someone who is joyful about Jesus, who loves Jesus, and I would ask them, what does Jesus mean to you? Why is it worth it for you to follow Jesus? And you really can't fake this. Like, you really can't fake this. When someone really asks, when you ask someone, um, you know what type of Christian they are based on the way they respond. Like, if someone says to you, oh, Christianity makes a lot of sense, you know, that's a good thing. Like, you feel like it's philosophically coherent, that's great. Um, Christianity has made me a good person or like makes me feel good about myself. Sure, that's great. But it's not amazing because there are plenty of other things that could do that for you. Like you could do cognitive behavioral therapy and you'll feel better about yourself. You could do a lot of different things to address all of those things. But what no, no other thing can give you is the beauty of having a relationship with Jesus. Like your day-to-day life with the presence of God Um, Him comforting, giving strength, just knowing him in the midst of suffering. Jesus never says, if you follow me, you'll avoid, I'll I'll rescue you from all suffering. He says, if you follow me, I'll be with you in the suffering. Nabil Qureshi says, all suffering is worth it uh, for Jesus, to follow Jesus. He's just that amazing. Okay? So for those of you who might be like struggling with the church stuff, um, do you remember what initially attracted you to Jesus? Do you remember what it is like to know the love of God, um, to know that Jesus, and, and this is, okay, now that I'm a father, the gospel that stands out to me in a different way. This is one reason that I really treasure the gospel, and I, as I've been reflecting on it, this is one reason why I think Jesus is amazing and the gospel is amazing. Um, when I think about my son, uh, when I think about Uh, When I think about how much I love my son, and then I think about God's redemptive plan to save humanity, it hits me differently than it did before. Because when God looks at you, he loves you so much that he was willing to give up his precious son, like my Toby, like his precious son, to incarnate, to come to this earth and where Jesus came to this world, he was incarnated as a baby, a squalling, pooping, throwing up baby. The, the, the creator of the universe, the person, the word of God, the person who holds everything together, he became a, a little boy um, in, in the first century. And not only that, he lived this life, the difficult life full of suffering, because life is full of suffering. He lived a life full of suffering And he lived a life faithful to obey the will of God, even to the point where he would die on a Roman cross, all for us, all for me. God, as a father, was willing to give up his son and let his son go through that pain in order to save us. Jesus, as the son, willingly volunteered and chose to go to that cross and die because he loves you that much. And that hits me different now that I'm a father. And now I can kind of imagine and feel what it would be like to give up, to lose my, it's, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable to think about. 
That's how much God loves you. That's how valuable it is to know the gospel. This is not something that even if you hear it a million times, you could hear this a million times, and it's still every time something beautiful, powerful. There are riches in the gospel that you probably don't, like you definitely don't understand. And the more and more you look into it, and the more and more you see the value and the treasure, the beauty of the gospel. So don't think Christianity is like the other kingdoms of the world. If we are exerting pressure and controlling people and trying to force them to conform to behavioral standards, that's missing the emotional heart of these parables, isn't it? Instead, like my dad says, let's show the treasure, how beautiful, how good it is to be a Christian. If you're a parent, um, I mean, I've thought about this in a lot of different ways. If you're a parent and uh, your kids don't know God, I mean, this this, this is probably very hard and tender uh, of a subject. But what I would say is um, examine your actual relationship with God and think to yourself, how do I treasure, like rather than trying to control what your kids believe, um, think about how much you are currently treasuring and finding worth and joy in Jesus. Because when your kids see you, what, how, you how you relate to God is so powerful. Because if you change, when, when parents change, when my parents changed as a result of their relationship with God, uh, I was paying attention. Do you know what I mean? Like I was paying attention because my mom is very different now. My dad is very different now as a result of their relationship with God. And so concentrate on treasuring Jesus, on singing to him, remembering him, experience the peace and joy that comes from the Holy Spirit rather than constantly trying to control your kid because what they need more than anything is to see how beautiful Jesus is. And honestly, you can point them to him, you can show them the treasure, but you can't control what they choose. And again, that's hard, but it requires faith and what I, I want to encourage you by saying, like, you can know that God loves your kids just as much more than you do, and God wants them to know him. Um, does that make sense? Um, this is the parable of the treasure. This is the parable of the pearl. The kingdom of heaven costs everything, but Jesus is so worth it. Let's pray. Dear Father, um, I thank you that you sent your son to die for us, that we might know you and experience the peace and joy um, to have your righteousness that comes from faith um, as a result of Jesus dying on the cross for us. Um, uh, I pray that more and more I would experience that joy, that you would unveil to me how good it is to be part of your kingdom, and that my life would be changed by knowing you, by knowing Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that um, our lives would be so attractive to people, that we would not be depressive, that we would not be dragging our feet, that we wouldn't be miserable, but that the joy of selling everything to receive your kingdom would be so attractive and appealing to people, and that many people would come to see how valuable and good you are. Um, I pray, Lord, that we would be able to really taste and see your goodness Um, and I thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen.